It was about really understanding what was the cultural movement happening around women's sport and women's football and really tapping into that into the right way so that we could get the results that we had. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at Como.tech. Welcome to a special episode of the Own the Moment podcast, diving into the unforgettable 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup, an event that became a global cultural milestone, particularly in Australia. This tournament shattered records in every aspect. Over 2 million tickets were sold, nearly 12 million Aussies tuned in to witness the Matildas' gripping semi-final on TV, and we saw average crowd attendances of around 30,000 people, far surpassing France 2019's average of just 20,000. But let's be clear, this success wasn't merely luck, good timing, or just because the Matildas happened to be playing well. My conversation with Kim Anderson, the head of marketing for the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, reveals a different story. A story of thoughtful planning, the application of basic marketing fundamentals, and captivating storytelling. In this episode, Kim and I delve into the marketing strategies that fueled this monumental success. We explore how they secured the bid, unravel the significance of the tournament's brand platform, Beyond Greatness, and discuss why Women's World Cup 23 stands as a watershed moment in the discourse around women's sports, earning its title as a tournament of firsts. Enjoy the show. Um, Kim Anderson, thanks for coming on the show. A pleasure. Nice to be here. Awesome. So we're going to talk a lot about the um, Women's World Cup uh, today, Um, but I just want to throw a few stats at, I guess, not you because you're very aware of these, but the (laughs) listeners um, and maybe those who, like, I guess, you know, people who were living under a rock and missed just how absolutely huge it was. I, I mean, just a couple of stats, the, you know, all of the TV records in Australia were broken. You know, that Matilda's semi-final game was, you know, almost 12 million people watching. Uh, you know, a couple of million tickets were sold, um, you know, which smashed a, a target, which I guess you guys had put out at around 1 million. Um I think interestingly, it was so much bigger than France 2019. You know, the average crowd um, uh, for 23 was 30,000, average 21,000 in France. Um, before we dig into all of these amazing successes, how did you, Kim, find yourself at FIFA and and, and working on Women's World Cup 23? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's probably not a traditional path. I would have thought to to doing something like that. I started out my career in sports marketing, so. Very much sports always been a passion. Um, So I worked across a number of sports properties early on in my career, including Sydney FC. So had had some exposure to football Mm. marketing. I then went away and did a whole bunch of other things, ended up in New York working in the design and innovation industry um, for a few years Hmm. and came back to Australia at the beginning of 2019 
expecting to do a whole bunch of consulting in that sort of space. And the woman who sort of led the Australian side of both the bid but also uh, the World Cup, Jane Fernandez, uh, we had known each other through my time at Sydney FC and she reached out and said, I, I need some support on a marketing campaign for the Australian bid, which was just a solo bid at that time, um, and famously mm. said to me, I just need your help for three months to, to kick this thing off and then uh, you can go <laughs> on your merry way. So five years on, not not quite um, what happened, but, yeah, that was that was sort of my entry point. So very unexpectedly sort of back in that sports space um, and on a very exciting bidding process. Yeah. And so talk me through the bid. I mean, from a like from a marketing and sort of mechanical process, like what actually goes into a bid and winning something like that? Because, you know, I, I guess the sort of naive um, person in me would think that it's much more about logistics and money. Um, but obviously, sort of there is a marketing side. Talk me through, you know, what does that look like? And what sort of things are you doing? And, you know, how did you think about, you know, going about winning? Yeah, absolutely. I'm mean, securing the bid, rather. Yeah, I think you're right in that it is much more of an election campaign than it is sort of a typical marketing campaign. So it's, you know, your right. ultimate audience is the voters. And for us, that was the 37 member FIFA Council who were going to vote on who secured the 2023 hosting rights. So, you know, Jane and the other part of the team were very much in the nuts and bolts of the operational side. What venues are we going to propose? How are we going to deliver this tournament? My job was to stoke enthusiasm, um, not only in the voters, but also in, I guess, the general public. So we ran our Get On Side campaign. Um, we got 800,000 people signing up saying they're excited about the tournament. And that for us was a unique part of what we did versus uh, the other bidders. So I think Japan had their own mm. website. No one else ran a social media campaign. No one else had sort of like this public registration campaign. And so that was quite unique for FIFA to be able to see there is genuine interest in this country um, for people to want to um, to host this. And so we had that already sort of in train by the time we then also partnered with New Zealand. And for us, that gave us, I guess, an extra narrative um, and what we called our tournament of first. So, you know, in order to co-host the tournament, we would be the first to co-host, we would be the first to host it in this region. So for us, it was really about showcasing, I guess, a growth strategy for FIFA, which really aligned with where they were taking their women's football strategy. So it was, it, it was many things, but I think from a marketing point of view, it was very much about identifying what does FIFA really want, what are their key drivers, and how can we translate that into public enthusiasm for the bid but also a really strong brand narrative. Yeah. that I mean, for me, that's so surprising that other countries wouldn't be engaging the public did that surprise you or is that sort of the status quo for this sort of thing talk, talk a little bit about that yeah it's interesting I hadn't seen from what I could see particularly from a, a women's bidding campaign I certainly hadn't seen people stoking that enthusiasm I think that will change now um, with campaigns moving forward right. um, certainly you know I mean even with our failed men's bid campaign of 2010 
you know, there was there was mm. a large-scale ad campaign. There was sort of there was a public messaging out there, but I don't think people had got, have ever, from what I've seen, gone to that sort of more grassroots marketing style of real community and fan engagement um, to showcase, mm. you know, a community and a movement behind a bid. Yeah, that's great. And I want to come back to um, fan engagement um, in a couple of moments because I think that's something that just from the outside looking in was sort of really um, apparent. Um, and, and so, okay, so you win the bid and, you know, the tournament sort of, I don't know what it, you know, what it was like on the inside, but at least from the outside, it felt like it was sort of big from day one. Talk a little bit about the ramp up. So when did you secure the bid, uh, just for context? Yeah, so that was June 2020. So um, okay, the last yeah. few um, months of the campaign were, you know, lockdown, COVID. Right. Um, fascinating time. And I think that was the other thing that probably I could touch on in terms of the bid is we could very quickly, because we'd already built all the building blocks around the brand and our campaign, we could very quickly pivot into digital storytelling to those voters. Right. Because we could no longer right. fly over, not that I was doing the flying, but our execs could no longer fly over and, and do that advocacy in person. And so I think that was a strength of our bid in the end, that our storytelling was core to what we were offering FIFA. Um, so back yeah. to your question. So, um, yeah. take me. <laughs> Back to your question, I guess, yes. Yeah. So, sorry, go on. We won in 2020 um, and then FIFA took sort of a year to set up the entity, the local entity that would run uh, the World Cup. And so that for me was sort of a year of doing other consulting projects, um, some in the football space, some mm. not. And then August 2021 was when I joined um, the FIFA team. I think I was, you know, employee number four or five, something like that. Um, and so from there we had sort of two years to deliver um, the Women's World Cup, which for context is not a lot of time. Qatar, um, the last Men's World Cup, <laughs> they had 12 years. So we certainly were oh, sort wow. of, um, you know, we started in lockdown. I think my f we were back in lockdown by the time I started and, the first four months were in lockdown, no team, trying to do a virtual brand launch. It was um, it was a really difficult way to start, I guess. So take take me back into sort of mid twenty twenty and even you know twenty twenty one. Was there ever a fear that because I assume one of the things that must have been challenging was actually not knowing, like. It sounds so silly now, obviously, right? But, you know, there was a time when it was like, well, I don't know what 2023 looks like. Can we put people in a stadium? Talk, talk me through without sharing anything you can't share, but, like, were there actual conversations back then around, like, what happens if um, and sort of contingencies? And, you know, what were those conversations like sort of in the peak of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you might recall that the Tokyo Olympics got delayed by a year and so, uh, you know, right. that was happening as I was starting um this oh. job and so we were literally having those conversations will we have an empty stadium will we have nine empty stadiums um how will we deal with that oh. what are the other ways we can engage um i mean it was it was a very real reality of um how do you recruit a workforce completely remotely how do you get people excited about a live event um that may not be live in sort of this climate so oh. There was, a, a, aside from all of the general obstacles that you 
kind of face when you're trying to deliver a women's sport property, um, all the naysayers. Um, you know, we, we were also facing some really, you know, realistic landscape market conditions that we couldn't control. You mentioned there that, you know, Qatar had 12 years and, you know, you guys had a couple of years. Tell me, um, you know, why that disparity? Is that something to do with women's versus men's sport? Or, you know, how can it be that Qatar gets 12 and you guys get two? What what actually um, leads to that? Yeah, look, I think it's just a traditional... um inequity in the bidding process that FIFA has used in the past. So I think, you know, the the Men's World Cup is um, the biggest global sporting event on the planet and we are the next biggest global sporting event on the planet now, but that mm. wasn't always the case. And so I, I guess with the level of investment, the level of broadcast and attendance interests, there's always been a longer lead time for the men's and I think the women's is now catching up because it has become such a blockbuster event. Yeah, okay, so the Women's World Cup, like, it clearly exceeded um, expectations. The numbers were bonkers, both, like, viewership and just, like, the general, like, vibe in the community. Um, And so I know I've heard you say in other interviews that, like, you know, there was a lot of scepticism, at least initially. Um, Where do you think that came from and, you know, sort of I assume you think it was very unfair but how did you think about the skepticism and sort of tackling that head on and um and did you see it sort of uh wane and and what do you think the reasons for that were so to talk yeah, about the skepticism look, I think I mean if you work in women's sport long enough you'll know it's a battle of resilience you know it's a battle for mm. visibility for credibility for you know investment so to me it was mm. no surprise that there was a lot of mm. skepticism around what this could be Um, and I think you know there's so much momentum in women's sport at the moment we're constantly breaking new records so um, of course there is a lot of scepticism that you know we won't beat something again so for us it was France 2019 people had seen that it was a blockbuster event but it was also hosted in you know the European stronghold for football in summertime and so could we as a relatively new territory for FIFA in winter against you know AFL and rugby Mm. and all the other sports you know possibly deliver the same thing there was you know there was undoubtedly a lot of skepticism I think you know we it's laughable now to look at um where the Matildas are um but you know back when I started on the bidding campaign they still had relatively low crowds um, and historically, you know, a decade ago they only had a couple of thousand. So their viewership wasn't as great. They were fighting for equal pay. Their sponsorships weren't as amazing. Um, Literally today the Australian word of the year is Matilda. So look how far we've come. So Mm. I think for us it Mm. was was about really understanding what was the cultural movement happening around women's sport and women's football and really tapping into that into the right way so that we could get the results that we had. Um, a lot of people asked me, did I expect that we would get to 2 million um, mm. people in the stands? I always thought we would beat our um, target of 1.5. I thought we would get maybe 1.7, 1.8. But to get um, two million was was amazing, and so 
it really was about having the right brand strategy, staying true to our strategy and not freaking out every time we hit an obstacle or we hit another naysayer because mm. that was constant even up till the day before the tournament. Mm. People didn't think we were going to be a success. So um, it is about mm. <laughs> being resilient throughout, I think, and, and having that belief um, that, that the strategy will deliver. Yeah, and so let's talk about the strategy. So, like, you you know, you have this brand platform, Beyond Greatness. Um, talk a little bit about where that came from. I know you've said in other interviews you really tried to position um, uh, World Cup 23 as a cultural movement rather than a football tournament, um, which definitely seems to have worked. Talk about, like, the insights that went into that, maybe some of the sort of, um, you know, the development and why you think yeah, it Yeah, look, again, I think um, France 2019 was a huge success, the brand platform for that was Dare mm. to Shine. We're told it means a little bit more mm. in France, like it translates better than what it does in English. But to me, Dare to Shine yep. is still coming from right. a place of striving for credibility and that's not where I thought we were huh. in terms of women's sport. These are incredible mm. athletes. What we needed to do was build a stage that was deserving of them, build um, an incredible fan experience, mm. build you know, a, a commercial structure that partners could get a part of and, and leverage. Um, and so for us it was about tapping into, yeah, behaving more like a culture brand than a sports brand, really leaning into hmm. what do we want to represent and what are all the different entry points for people to get a, to be a part of that. And so there was already, um, you know, we were building off the success of the European Championships and the Women's World Cup before us and all these other things that were happening mm. in sport. We'd seen the Black Ferns, um, you know, win the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand, which was right. a really important moment for them culturally. Um, and so it was about understanding mm. how, what are all the entry points for people? So for me, it was multiculturalism. So understanding that there are all these teams mm. coming here and the mm. strength of our bid was we have 300 cultures um, and 200 languages. So, sorry, 200 cultures right. and 300 languages. And so how could we make it feel like huh. an amazing atmosphere that everyone wants to be a part of and that even those neutral games would feel like home games? Hmm. How could we use music as a lever to kind of become a more entertainment property for people and, and draw people in? Um, you know, how could we look at what's great about women's football, not looking at, at, at men's sport and becoming this really inclusive, welcoming place for people where everyone felt like they could be a part of it. Men's sports are quite, can be quite intimidating places, particularly men's football. Um, and so we wanted mm. to be a space where everyone felt like they could be celebrated they could be a part of the movement. And so that's where Beyond Greatness was was born. It was about impact on the pitch, but impact off the pitch as well. Yeah, it feels like there's almost more happening off than on. In a, like it feels very much like a lot of the brand work was actually more about everything other than the football. And that's not to take away from the football, but it's sort of like sort of yeah, broadening because I think, you know, and it's been said a hundred times or a million times, but like the fascinating thing about the World Cup for me was just like how many people got excited that have never watched a game of, I mean, men's football in their life. I mean, I know I sort of count myself as one of those people, right? I'm sort of not a, not a soccer fan, um, but couldn't help but get sort of dragged yeah. in. 
um, which is interesting. So you talked a little bit about sort of fan engagement and that sort of experiential piece, whether it's music. Talk more about sort of, you know, what strategies did you guys take into uh, take into the World Cup and sort of, you know, you said sort of best in class um, fan experience and engagement. You know, what does that mean and, and what sort of things did you guys do that yeah, maybe absolutely. stand out a little well, bit? Well, again, I mean, I think it comes back to that strategy um, that we were just talking about. So if you are going to fill the stadium with 1.5 million fans, that is more than, mm. I mean, it may not be now, but at the time it was more than what the Matildas could fill for us in terms of that fans or more than even what a sports fan or a, or a football right. fan could feel. So we called those guys the convincibles. Um, so people who might resonate with mm. us have all those entry points that I talked about before, but we needed to give them an experience of the brand that made them feel included, made them feel like they were united in this journey mm. with us around what the brand represented. Um, and so there were lots of different things that we did. I think the music program was really integral. That was everything from the sonic identity that was part of the brand mm. to the musicians um, that we had at the tournament, um, the unity beat that we created. So, you know. Uh, what what the was unity that? Beat. I, I so that. the unity, the unity beat, beat was a chant that we created um, for everyone to participate in. So, again, using that insight of mm. Men's oh, football right. you go to and you feel like if you don't know the chance of the team, you're not really part of the experience. And so we wanted to create this chant that was something right. that celebrated greatness in everyone, that was something that everyone could be a part of. And so young mm. kids, families, they were enjoying coming and experiencing that and singing along to that. It was a really simple chant. It was, it was an easy thing you could tap your feet to. Mm. Um, it didn't matter if you sang mm. it or you just danced to it. You could you know, participate in whatever way you want. So it became this shared cultural experience that people really, um, really vibed into. Um, so that was something that was, mm. I guess, part of the in-stadium experience. But then we also had um, our unity pitch. So our unity pitch was this vibrant, you know, patchwork of colours football pitch that we took around to each of the host cities and around to right. each of um, lots of regional locations as well. And so it was a space for the community to gather. Sometimes we had salsa dancing on there. Sometimes we had blind football hmm. or um, a wheelchair sports or, you know, it was just a kick around for people. So it became a space which, yes, had some competitive hmm. games on it at a time, but it wasn't about being an elite athlete. And so that was a really crucial way hmm. of getting visibility for what we were, what we represented and what we could, you could be a part of. Um, but allowing everyone to be to be in that. Um, I think aside from that, we I mean, closer mm. to the tournament time, we had our trophy tour. It'd be surprised how many people get excited about a trophy right. travelling around <laughs> different places, but I think that was just another mechanic for us to do storytelling. So finding local people who've mm. gone beyond greatness in their community and sort of bringing that to life um, mm. and... The last but not least was the Fan Festival, one of my favourites. So um, I think if you're thinking right. about drawing people into a tournament like ours, the Fan Festival was sort of a stepping stone. So you might have gone to the Fan Festival to think, yeah, I might watch a bit of football on there, but actually I'm going there to listen to a music artist or do some cultural activities with my kids, whatever yep. it might be, see the sponsor activations. And it became this stepping stone where people got caught up in the atmosphere and the vibe that was around the tournament 
and then started purchasing tickets and going to these matches as well. So um, that for us, I think that entertainment destination was really critical and also showed the seriousness with which FIFA mm. was taking this tournament. We were putting forward best-in-class experiences all mm. over the place um, to showcase that this was a product we were investing in and a product that mattered. Yeah, and we, we were actually a part of the uh, Fan Festival in Perth sort of as a tech partner. And, I mean, it was massive. You know, I walked sort of, you know, we were there a lot and even just every day, you know, walking home, you know, it was packed. Um, and, and it was particularly that sort of family and kids piece, which I think is, you know, so much a, a part of um, the, the success. So you talked about like mass cultural moments and this was like, I mean, uh, this is like one of the biggest mass culture moments I can remember, like definitely in sport and, you know, maybe even beyond that, you know, it's hard to sort of think of something that was more uniting in the last five or ten years. Um, and so obviously that's a huge opportunity for commercial partners and you talked a little bit about that. Um, talk about, um, you know, how you guys thought about partners, um, sponsors and, and you know, what sort of opportunities there were and how did you sort of help them get involved? Yeah, in, so I think, I mean, first of all, it was a real step change for FIFA for this tournament. So it was the first time that they separated out hmm. the commercial rights for the women's properties so previously, um, right. as an Adidas or as a Coke, you had to buy into the men's tournament in order to get the women's tournament, which, you know, through no fault of anyone's, uh, um, it's the way the world has traditionally mm, worked. Mm. That, you know, the women's becomes a bit of a side dish. It's not mm. the main event. And so for the first time we separated yeah. those rights out so that you could buy into the women's football pillar. Um, and so we saw amazing brands um, mm. like Zero step up to the plate, Visa, um, who are right. now just invested in women's football. Um, Zero is an amazing brand where they they've, mm. all they've done is sponsor women's football properties around the world and we were there first. Um, and so I think with mm. that you get a level of investment and intent and brand alignment and audience alignment that you don't see when you have the former strategy. Um, and I think it also did. Right start to make some of the other brands like Coke and Adidas who are amazing partners of both men, the men's and the women's side think about their strategies differently. It mm. wasn't just adapting their men's football campaign for the women's tournament six months later. Right. They truly invested in separate campaigns for that. Um, and so I think, I mean, that journey was um, sort of a collaborative one, um, you know, everything from me presenting and sharing the brand from the very beginning and, and making them a part of that process to doing collaborative workshops and sessions um, to make sure that what they were delivering was aligned with um, Beyond Greatness. And so I think we saw, you know, Coke mm. had their Believing is Magic campaign and a real focus on diversity and yep. inclusion. Um, we had Visa with Behind Every Number There's a Story and so they were doing a lot of storytelling about players on the pitch mm. um, and the power of these incredible athletes and the possibilities that that creates. Um, zero was about the beautiful game and beautiful numbers, so, you know, improving numbers off the pitch um, can help, you know, grassroots mm. clubs thrive. So I think they very much brought into um, that space and then we saw brands like Adidas, who loved what we were doing in the music space in particular. And so whilst they were doing cool hmm, stuff like putting Mary Fowler and Caitlin Ford on giant billboards in Sydney, which really just 
showcased, you know, mm. how momentous this event was and how incredible these athletes were. They were also doing collaborations with artists mm. like Benny that we were using um, to really sort of tie everything together. Mm. So, yeah, I loved working with the partners. I think we had an incredible suite of people who were really dedicated um, to what they were trying to achieve and, and dedicated to the social impact that we were trying to have as well. Yeah, amazing. And so, like, I get, I guess, you know, so the, the the tournament ends and I guess, like, the big question on everyone's mind, right, is, like, how do you sustain that momentum? And obviously, like, it's, I guess it's sort of hard. A, a World Cup is, by definition, a, a sort of a big moment and sort of there's, you know, the next big moment will come. But how, how, how did you guys at FIFA think about uh, maintaining the, the momentum, you know, over the next Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think be? we, FIFA's, traditionally worked really closely with all of their member associations on this women's football strategy, trying to look at Mm. how, you know, emerging nations like Afghanistan through to, you know, powerhouses like, um, you know, France can actually kind of continue to grow their Mm. women's football um, capacities. Um, But I think for us, I mean, Australia and New Zealand, you would have seen like Football Australia and New Zealand football have invested heavily in their legacy campaigns. Um, and that's something that was done really intently. I know that Football Australia after the mm. Asian Cup in 2015, they saw a 20% spike in participation, but eventually that sort of withered away. And so they took a much more proactive sure. approach, even from the beginning of the bidding process to say, we will invest in legacy, what do we need to do? And so that is where the work is now, is actually mm. maintaining that momentum um, and I, you know, I hope to see more and more of that. I think, you know, with the A-Leagues, we've seen, you know, an 800% growth in, yep. in women's football memberships. Um, there's lots of good signs, but it does take commitment. It does take investment and it does take innovation. People yep. are going to have to, you know, the next Women's World mm. Cup is going to have to shift the needle even further and I look mm. forward to, and I'm excited to see what they do next. I hope they blitz it. Yeah, those are big, <laughs> big shoes to fill. Um, uh, so I have to ask you before we move on to the uh, quick fire round. What was your favourite moment from the tournament? Oh gosh, tournament? there are so um, many, but um, I think for me, I was lucky enough to be in Brisbane for the Matildas quarterfinal um, for that incredible um, mm. penalty shootout. Um, yeah, oh, something I'll I'll never crazy. forget. <laughs> Yeah, for, for yeah. me it's the Sam Kerr I felt like I, I was in the stands uh, for that one and I felt like I saw it in slow motion. Crazy. I was sort of like, what is she doing? She's off, off on her own. And then, yeah, it was literally yeah. just a truly amazing moment and something Mental. I'm so happy for her that she got that moment after all the struggles with her injuries. She truly deserved to have her sort of moment in the thing. Yeah, and it's funny because it, it feels like that's one of those moments now that's going to be mm-hmm. in montages forever i mean it's one of those sort of all-time australian sports moments so yeah that's really really cool um all right so i want to pivot kim into sort of more general um marketing chat and i want to start with your favorite marketing campaign from any brand Ooh, of, wow. all time. Um, of all time is a bit cool um look i think one that i've probably been really impressed by in the last year is one you might be aware of which is um correct the internet um so it's a campaign I always love campaigns where audiences can actually kind of interact and get involved I think that's really cool 
So the simplicity of this one is it's a it's a tool to fix the inherent biases in our search engines um, that typically favour male results mm. um, over females. And so I think it's just really impressive the mm. progress they've made, the awareness they've made. When you get icons like Billie Jean King, um, you know, sharing your campaign and, and saying that you're doing the right thing, I think you're you're on the right track. They are literally shifting the dial for equity. Um, in that technology space. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I must admit I've not seen, I, I've seen a couple of things pop up where it's been stuff like, you know, what um, uh, I think I saw something around like the men's US basketball team has won the most yes. medals or whatever and it's actually not true. Um, and you do wonder like yes. how can the search engine... Look, they do learn from us. It's not just the, you know, search sort of... engine company's fault, but we need to re-educate the, right. the engines that, um, yeah, it's not Cristiano Ronaldo. It's actually, you know, um, a player from Canada. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's, uh, that's an absolutely great one, sort of that grassroots sort of social impact. Yeah. Um, all right. So what about the best brand in the world right now? And I guess best is maybe sort of, you know, it might be your favourite, but what's a brand that you look up yeah, to? Yeah. Really um, look, I by? think lately it's probably been Tourism Australia and I was lucky enough to work with them quite a lot during the tournament. I think they're just doing a phenomenal job right. um, of attracting people yeah, back absolutely. to our country after, you know, the pandemic. Um and also just doing an amazing job in terms of marketing effectiveness. I think similar to what we were trying to achieve, they had a lot of naysayers about their Come Say G'day campaign and, and the sort of, you know, animated kangaroo sort of typical kind of um, stereotypical mm. ways I guess they were marketing Australia, but they truly listened to the audience that they're trying to market to, not to us here at home um and i think susan cockhill and the team have just done a phenomenal job yeah there's a great lesson about sort of orientation like marketing 101 there right you're not the customer i actually i have to plug um i actually have we have an episode with susan cockhill coming out very soon i interviewed her at south by southwest a few weeks ago and i mean she was like yes everything at uh, ta is absolutely brilliant but even just you know her work on think different um uh you know, with Steve Jobs and Apple. So, yeah, keep an eye out um, for that one. But I think that's a, that's a great choice. Um, all right, so what's the most overrated trend in marketing? What are you <laughs> Look, sick I could to say death of I, hearing AI, about? but that would be the um, the obvious one. <laughs> right. You would, yeah, you, um, you wouldn't be I the first. I <laughs> think it's probably, for me, sustainability. Um, it's such a passion point for me, but I think Interesting. it's also like AI being used as such a buzzword. And so... Not many people, I think, are, and not many brands, I think, are truly investing in it um, to create meaningful impact. And so mm. I would love to see more people taking it seriously as opposed to just um, shaping their copywriting around what sounds good. Yeah, yeah, I think greenwashing is a, is, a, is a great one. So what about the opposite? What about underrated? What do you still feel like, you know? Look, I think, I mean, enough? going back to Susan and the TA guys, I think marketing effectiveness. So I've always been a big believer that yeah. you need to use data to be able to, you know, create a case in the boardroom. Um, and I think that's something that we had to do consistently mm. um, in this job. So, um, right. you know, our... Our ticket sales were phenomenal pre-tournament. Typically you would expect 
50% of your ticket sales to come during a major event. And we had smashed that. I mean, we were at 1.5, our target, within a couple of days of launching the tournament. Um, wow. But because they were so phenomenally good in Australia in the lead up, there was a lot of uncertainty within the ranks of Zurich, um, you know, HQ about our New Zealand ticket right. sales. Um, but all the data and insights mm. were showing us that um, excitement was there, intent to attend was there, our brand metrics were really strong and our consumer insights told us that culturally Kiwis just buy tickets the night before. They're not going to. They're not going to buy ahead of time um, unless it is, you know, something that they, you know, unless it's Taylor Swift or whatnot. And so we didn't have the Matildas effect in New Zealand. Sure. They didn't know their team. Their team hadn't played at home for four years. So, you know, rugby is their big sport, not not women's football. And so, you know, I was trying to use data to really tell that story and ultimately that is what happened, but it was it was not an easy one. So I'm all for marketing effectiveness and, and being able to use data to show, you know, what is going to happen in their campaign. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, a great answer. Um, small side note, because um, I have to ask, did New Zealand get behind the Matildas in the end or sort of did you actually see anything there with the sort of, uh, you know the sort of sibling rivalry. Did that, sort of how did that actually play out of, as the um, as obviously the Matildas progressed? Yeah, I think so. I mean, particularly after their team was out as well, so after the sure, fans, sure. Um, had departed, I think we saw you know still great viewership figures over there, as well as really mm. full fan festival crowds um, watching Matildas matches. Mm. So yeah, we love to have that sort of. Um, sibling rivalry, but I think ultimately mm. they were they were rooting for us towards the end. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right, so who, Kim, uh, you know, a marketer that inspires you that you think I should have on the show next? Who's someone that I should be Yeah, talking absolutely. Look, I, I honestly would talk to Rebecca Soden from Correct the Internet. I think she's doing such interesting mm. stuff in this space um, and it's not um, – you know, it's not necessarily traditional um, marketing in terms of, you know, selling products or, or whatnot, but I think the social impact mm. that she's having and the social change she's having through this technology um, sports marketing campaign, it's, it's really interesting. So, yeah, Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, will do. Kim, thanks so much for coming on the show. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com.